Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Carissa Nitschi. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. On July 11th and 12th, Lithuania hosted the 2023 NATO Summit in Vilnius. Against the backdrop of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, this year's summit took place during one of the most critical moments in history for the transatlantic alliance. In Vilnius, NATO allies grappled with a number of big questions, including the question of Ukraine's membership in NATO. Likewise, the alliance also grappled with measures to guarantee long-term security for Ukraine and announce new regional defense plans to bolster NATO's defense and deterrence capabilities. On the sidelines of the summit, there was also a breakthrough in Sweden's membership to NATO, with Turkish President Erdogan agreeing to support Sweden's membership in the alliance. To discuss these takeaways from the Vilnius summit and so much more, we're very pleased to have Ambassador Kurt Volker and Ambassador Douglas Lute with us on the podcast. Ambassador Kurt Volker was the U.S. Special Representative for Ukraine Negotiations from 2017 to 2019 and U.S. Ambassador to NATO from 2008 to 2009. A former career member of the U.S. Senior Foreign Service, he worked in official capacities for over 25 years under six presidential administrations. Ambassador Douglas Lute is the former U.S. Permanent Representative to the North Atlantic Council, a post he held from 2013 to 2017. He also served in the White House during the Obama-Biden administration as Coordinator for South Asia and under President George W. Bush as Deputy National Security Advisor for Iraq and Afghanistan from 2009 to 2000, 2007 to 2009. He is a decorated military officer of 35 years and has held numerous positions in the U.S. Department of Defense during his career in government. Ambassador Volker, Ambassador Lou, we are so thrilled to have you both today on the podcast. It is great to be with you guys. Thanks very much for the invitation and a lot to talk about. Same here. I look forward to it. All right, Jim, kick us off. Well, thank you, Carissa, and uh, I hope you don't get in trouble from Andrea by letting me go first and, and ask a lot of questions. I know she tries to keep a lid on me, and so you've sprung you sprung me loose, so I appreciate that very much. But it's dangerous, see, uh, dangerous precedent, Jim. It no, is. Pandora's box here, guys. <laughs> it, it is. This is a let loose the hounds of war, and here I am. Um, let, let me let me start off first by saying how thrilled I am that uh, both of you all, great colleagues from um, the NATO days, thank you so much for joining us. I've really enjoyed our time working together over the past number of years, and, and even today as we continue to work with allies, even after leaving government. Um, you know, uh, just to start off and start with you, Doug, I, I went to the NATO forum on the margins there of the summit. And I couldn't help but remember a lot of what you and I and our teams went through at the Whale Summit. You know, that was a pretty historic summit, too, after the, you know, the first uh, NATO summit after the invasion the first time of Ukraine by, uh, by Russia. And, um, and, and we began to meet. It was a pretty much a wartime summit. We were having to deal with, uh, with um, defense spending and uh, began to put together NATO forces and, and put together other uh, bits of, of force structure that we implemented in the years that followed all the way up to the Warsaw Summit, which was the last one of our administration. Um, I just was wondering, as you were watching uh, this summit and what was coming out of, out of Vilnius, did you think about the Wales time as well and the stuff that we began to put together there, including uh, the investment challenge? We well, you know, Jim, um, 
I, I did think back on Wales uh, during the Vilnius uh, summit just a couple of weeks ago. And, and what occurred to me is that both the Wales summit, the Warsaw summit later in 2016 and now uh, Vilnius this year sort of defy conventional wisdom about NATO. Right. The right. wisdom of NATO is it's big bureaucracy, you know, approaching 75 years old, should should have probably retired after the Cold War. Very hard to get things done. It operates by consensus. It's sort of sclerotic and, and stuck in the past and so forth. But, you know, these summits, 14, 2014, 2016, now this year, really defy that that image. And it, I think they all combined show that NATO has proven adapted and adaptable uh, in ways that maybe uh, people didn't uh, didn't expect. So, you know, going back to 2014, uh, after the, the previous invasion of um, Ukraine by Russia, uh, there were key adaptations. And I think Vilnius played very much on the same thing. So NATO is adapting. And even despite uh, 31 members now, and the requirement for big decisions to be agreed by consensus, um, NATO continues to move forward. And, and Vilnius is a great example of that. I, I I agree with that. And Kurt, just going to you too, um, you certainly have a number of summits under your belt as well, the same ones yeah. that I did. And what's interesting is, uh, Doug used the word adaptation. You know, NATO has always been trying to adapt. And I was thinking back to those times during sequestration for us. You know, the defense budget was being cut. Yeah. Um, it was after the economic downfall, 2008. Uh, and at NATO, the adaptation wasn't something like we were doing at Wales or in, in Vilnius, but the adaptation was smart defense. <laughs> we had to deal with uh, having no money in allied coffers. How do you how do you keep your capabilities alive when there's no money coming into defense and, and no political will? Uh, were you also thinking back to uh, adaptations that were going in the other direction than Vilnius? Well, yeah, actually, yes. And, and I was just thinking about it, just seeing you on the screen here, Jim, that um, <laughs> we worked together 25 years ago uh, yeah. at, NATO, at the U.S. mission to NATO preparing the Washington summit. Right. It was 1999. So we were there in 98. Yep. And the Washington summit was, um, you know, it was a period where we had made the decision already in Madrid in 97 to bring in Poland, Czech Republic and Hungary. And then we were solidifying that membership. Ratification was done. And then we were struggling with what to say about the Baltic states and, and what to say uh, about Slovenia and Romania. Right. And we we got through it, but I kind of felt like, okay, that was just kind of a, a placeholder summit in a way. The only big decision we made there, which came to fruition 20 years later, was the new building. <laughs> uh, 20 years and one and a half billion dollars later. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it was it was really the 2002 Prague summit where I think we seized the moment. We grasped that something big had changed. Yeah. Um, we had the 9-11 the attacks on the United States. We had the first invocation of Article 5. And we went ahead with a big bang on yep. um, enlargement, bringing in seven countries in one shot. Um, we launched the NATO Response Force, uh, which has existed in various forms and various ways, not quite the same anymore, but... Um, the idea was a, a deployable high readiness force, something that we thought might be necessary. And 
we also um, firmed up the commitment uh, even then at 2% of GDP as a defense expenditure as what was expected of countries. It had been um, during the Reagan-Bush years, uh, early, you know, late 80s, early 90s, it was 3%. And then we kind of drifted through the Clinton years without knowing what to say. And the, the Prague 2002, we, we said it's 2%. That's what we expect. We expect 2%. And then U.S. administrations for the past 23 years have been arguing, or you know, 21 years have been arguing. Come on, guys, two percent. Come on, let's let's do it. Um, but I, I raised the Prague Summit because that was a really good example of NATO rising to the times. And here, I think we're we're, we're kind of we're more like the Washington Summit here with Vilnius because NATO did very very well, I think at the things that it knows how to do. Um, positioning forces further forward in the East, uh, recommitting with some credibility to more defense spending, approving defense plans for all of NATO's regions, uh, welcoming countries like Finland um, that have recently gone through the ratification process, um, talking about new threats and challenges like cyber and, and uh, agreeing to have greater consultations about emerging risks, for instance, those from China. But the moment is bigger than the adaptation, I would argue. Say the yeah. moment is one where we now have the biggest war in Europe since World War II, over 6 million refugees, um, war crimes committed on almost a daily basis uh, against a European democracy. It's a partner country of NATO. And I don't think that NATO has yet squared its responsibilities for collective defense of the members with the war in Ukraine. Because the war in Ukraine is harming the security of all NATO allies. And I don't think we will have a situation of peace and security in Europe, such as we've had for most of NATO's lifetime, uh, until Ukraine is a member of NATO. I think that Russia has declared an intent to keep up the war. And I think the only way we prevent future war is through deterrence, which is Ukraine and NATO. So I think NATO kind of took a pass on that at this summit, but I think it has to come up at the coming summit, at the Washington summit next year. Well, Kurt, thank you very much. And with Carissa, with your patience, I, I've got to jump in on, on what Kurt just said, because I think that's the nut of what we want to get at. I was going to ask what the our two esteemed ambassadors thought about 2% as a floor, but I'm going to put that aside and instead jump into what Kurt just said, because I agree with you, Kurt, and I want to see what Doug has to say about that as well. But I wanted to throw in the comment that, uh, and I'm going to approach this delicately, because these are all good colleagues of mine, like you two. I have had to do communique drafting, and it's very difficult, particularly uh, when when it's at the last minute, uh, as tactically this was uh, at Vilnius, where they tried to deal with this uh, this this uh, issue of Ukraine membership in NATO. And uh, you know, how do they say in writing in the communique something more than the 2008 Bucharest summit? Uh, and I think I'm not. Um, I don't think this is some uh, breaking news here, but I think there's a lot of people who weren't happy with Para 11, particularly the last sentence. Uh, I was I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe that last sentence survived. 
Um, and I was a bit dismayed uh, at uh, at uh, at that. Uh, and and of course, you know, we, that caused trouble that we can talk about as well at the at, at the alliance. But but Doug, you heard what Kurt had to say about this. I agree too. Do you, where, where are your views in terms of, of Ukraine being part of NATO, the importance of that, as well as how it was handled at Vilnius, uh, whether it was in the communique or the G7 or the rollout of the whole package? You know, there was there was, I think, some some issues there. So, Doug, over to you. And then, Kurt, if you've got a follow up, uh, that would be great. And then, Carissa, I promise it's over to you and I'm going to keep my mouth shut. So. So, uh, Doug, over to you. Well, you know, to go back to. Um to replay the videotape, right? This takes us back to Bucharest, the Bucharest summit in 2008, when right. NATO declared boldly that Ukraine and Georgia, by the way, uh, right. will be members of the alliance. But since 2008, uh, NATO's done little in terms of describing how and when uh, right. that ship would take place. And frankly, 15 years after Bucharest, Vilnius didn't really move uh, much towards explaining how and when. In fact, if you go directly to the communique, the language is that um, Ukraine will become a member when allies agree and conditions are met. Well, that's, Para, a, that's Para essentially a paraphrase of the treaty itself, right? Uh, Article 10 of the treaty, which lays out how new members are, are added. So yeah. look, there's a, there's a lot of space between Bucharest and membership, and Vilnius didn't move us much. Uh, in, uh, in that space. And it essentially punted the issue uh, in terms of how and when uh, to next year's Washington summit. Um, and and part of this is understandable, right? Because there is an ongoing war, as, as Kurt's adequately described, accurately described. There's an ongoing war. And how do you go from active combat to membership? Um, and, um, and that's a delicate, I think that's a delicate question. That that Vilnius did not confront head on. On it yeah. has to do with, you know, it has to do with the conditions. Can can uh, can an aspirant like Ukraine join if it's in active combat? Um, and what is the time? What's the appropriate timing and so forth? But essentially, what NATO did in order to reach consensus, which is what was required coming out of Vilnius, right? Because you right. wanted. Vilnius, all summits want to portray cohesion and solidarity, unity, right? And in order to get that unity, Vilnius, by way of compromise, uh, essentially punted to next year's Washington summit. So that's right. kind of where we stand. And, and, and the result is that there's homework. NATO has homework to do in the now 12 months uh, before the Washington summit. And the good news is there is a, there's a new vehicle by which uh, that that homework can be done. And that's the NATO-Ukraine consul, which, which, by the way, met for the first time at head of state level um, at Vilnius. And we'll meet right. in uh, this week uh, to, to take on uh, the crisis uh, with regard to Russian suspension of the grain deal. Um, and so this new consul, which, give, which empowers Ukraine to actually call for meetings, and gives, in practice, gives Ukraine a seat at the NATO table is, I think, the vehicle by which we can move towards Washington and begin to, to, to lay some specifics down with regard to Ukraine's eventual membership, both how and when. 
Absolutely. No, I, I think you're right. And I, I want to underline also that point about unity. I mean, in terms of Ukraine today and the war with Russia, we had to make sure that the Russians got the message that we're still unified. There might be squabbling in, inside the house, uh, but in terms of the alliance, we're unified. And, and even, if you, even if you have to go back to agreed language to, to get the compromise and to move things forward, then you have to do that. So you're absolutely right. Well, this, is, this is essential, right? Because Putin's strategic goal here is to divide the alliance. His, right. his game is the long game, right? He's yep. gambling that he can outlast NATO. So it's very important that every time NATO convenes, it shows, it defies that image for Putin. It defies the image that we can be, uh, we can be outweighed, that we can be, that we will eventually divide and he can conquer us. So Vilnius was successful with, in that regard. Yeah, well, let, let me beg to let me beg to differ a little bit on that, uh, at least on the issue of Ukraine. Um, and I'll just start off with a comment that when you look at the post-Vilnius environment, how many countries have expressed unhappiness with the outcome? So quite a few. So that's already a sense of lack of unity. But I want to I want to compare it in a way to Bucharest. Bucharest was a was a screw up, um, and, and I was the I was the principal DAS for Europe in the State Department at the time. Dan Fried, your fault, Kurt. Secretary, my fault, among others. But what happened? is the U.S. and a few countries went into the Bucharest summit with a position that we we're going to push to get uh, an invitation for Ukraine and Georgia to join the map. And the French and the Germans and the Greeks and the Belgians and others made clear they were not going to go for that. And we went into that summit with a division, and we ended up with a mishmash of language that said they will be members. The next step is the map. And no, they can't have it. So it, it was just a complete dog's breakfast of a, of a decision. And that, in my view, is kind of what happened in reverse at Vilnius. You had 30 allies all ready to give strong language about bringing Ukraine into the alliance as soon as it's practical to do so. And you had the US and Germany saying, nope, we're not gonna go for that. And uh, that, again, led to a mishmash of language where it says in the beginning of the paragraph, Ukraine's future is in NATO. And as Doug said, the end of the paragraph, it says uh, Ukraine will get an invitation when all allies agree, meaning they don't, and when the conditions are met, meaning there are conditions that are not met. And of course, nobody knows what those conditions are. <laughs> so it is identical in some ways to Bucharest, both in meaning and in the way we got there. Yeah, that's a very, very clever observation, I think, uh, Kurt. I mean, mishmash of language uh, on both ends is, no, that it's, it's absolutely right. Uh, Carissa, uh, you've been very patient. Over to you. I hope I haven't stolen some of your questions. No, not at all. I'd love to turn a little bit to the other side of the same coin, which is really talking about NATO's core task of defense and deterrence. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit um, first from you, Ambassador Lute, on these new regional defense plans that NATO agreed to. Um, do you believe these are really moving the needle on this core task of defense and deterrence? And then um, Ambassador Volker would be curious to hear your thoughts on the kind of defense investment pledges that would need 
um, to be put in place in order to really match these more robust regional defense plans, kind of weaving in Jim's question as well as this new concept of 2% as a floor versus a ceiling. Kind of how are you thinking about this issue as well? So first over to you, Ambassador Lute, on the new regional defense plans. Right. So NATO has now agreed uh, three regional defense plans, um, one to the north, sort of think the Nordics, North Atlantic, the Arctic, uh, the center, uh, so think Central and Eastern Europe, and then uh, the south. And in particular, it's not just the plans, it's the fact that these plans are much more specific in terms of assigning defense responsibilities to each of the three regions. Right. So there are specific force assignments, capability assignments now for each of these three regional plans. And what that means is that national militaries among the allies know where they're supposed to go on what timelines with um, with what capabilities. And these specific assignments allow for exercising, rehearsing and so forth. And these are very important because. Um, because they can take the full advantage of being on the defense, right? The value of the defense is you know the ground, you know your assignment, and you can rehearse it. And these defense plans then sort of weight this advantage to uh, to the alliance. So I think this is a meaningful uh, defense step forward uh, by way of uh, these specific uh, defense plans. And now the real question will be, do we step up and actually um, take full advantage? of the specific assignments. And so um, you've seen, for example, in, in the short term or in the immediate term, Germany uh, declaring that it will step forward and assign a brigade uh, right. to the specific responsibility of defending Lithuania, right? So that's that's a small piece of the, the regional defense plan in the center, right? But there are literally hundreds of such pieces. And so the extent to which these are assembled and exercised and rehearsed will be uh, worth watching in the in the coming uh, in the coming years. But I do think it's a it is a meaningful step forward in terms of NATO's primary task, which is collective defense, right, which is defense of NATO territory itself. Yeah, I completely agree with Doug on that. Uh, I think it is a great step forward. Jim will remember. When I arrived at NATO as ambassador, I gave an interview to the Financial Times, and a controversial topic at the time was whether NATO should have any defense plans at all for the Baltic states. Right. And I just blurted out on purpose that, of course we should. (laughs) It's NATO's job. This is what NATO's there for. We're supposed to have defense plans. And this this made a big headline. It, it caused a startle within the administration, and this was the Bush administration at the time, and a startle within the alliance uh, because it was the end of the Bush administration. Nobody really acted on that at NATO. But then Obama came in, and he picked up the same point and said, "Yes, of course we should do this." <laughs> and so at the Strasbourg summit, we finally agreed to actually have defense plans for the Baltic states, which was a very good thing. So I completely agree. This is a further step forward on that, and I think very important for NATO. I, I want to add one dimension to this um, part of uh, Carissa's question. Russia has now successfully driven a state through the heart of the NATO-Russia Council. And that means that NATO allies are less squeamish about 
the deployments and the exercises and the defense planning for the Eastern members of the Alliance than they had been before last year. So I think that is a very good thing for NATO to get over that excessive caution about provoking Russia and not living up to the responsibilities. Russia has now made it clear we have no alternative. You know, it's really um, interesting. It, it's interesting, isn't it, that ad Vilnius, while it's true that the NATO-Russia Council is essentially dormant or indefinitely suspended, right? In its place is the NATO-Ukraine Council, right? Yes. So so you, you have this sort of symmetry um, of, uh, of NATO's closest relationships. Um, and so the NRC has been replaced by the NUC, and that's only right. Well, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing uh, thing. And I do know that uh, in trying to convince Ukraine particularly, but even folks outside the alliance community that, uh, you know, uh, having a council for Ukraine uh, was, was a good thing. Uh, it was going to give them, as Doug said, you know, a seat at the table and uh, almost everything except the Article 5, which is what they really want. But that aside, uh but that uh, the point is that, you know, we're going to give you this. It'll be the same level that the Russians used to have. You know, their council's gone. Yours is, is there. I, I'm not sure how how well that went over in Kiev. <laughs> you know, it's like, don't give us a council. Give us ammunition. And it's like, we're going to give you both. Uh, yeah, you know, I think but, the idea, Kiev, why did you even have a NATO-Russia council? What were you thinking? Well, on that point, Kurt, and, and Carissa, if I can, just to jump in on that point. You know, um, it's, it, people have a short memory, and it's hard when people ask me, they'll go, how how did you guys even have a NATO-Russia council? How come you didn't have yes. uh, war plans, regional plans this way? Uh, how come you guys, uh, you know, you, you, um, you were even thinking about uh, Russia being a part of NATO? I remember that very yes. well. Yes, uh, how How, you know, where were you guys? You were idiots. Smart defense, you wanted to pool and share, just-in-time logistics, you know, all these things that we were doing in those days uh, in a different atmosphere. And people forget about that. Uh, and so, uh, Kurt and Doug, just for the record, and then over to you, Chris, you know, how did we end up to a point now where we're having to do things that people assumed we were doing all along? War plans, higher readiness. It was hard 10, 15 years ago to get nations to put money in that way because you didn't have Putin on the march. But you guys talk about yeah. that. Kurt, yeah, this is a great opening. Let me, let me jump in there, Jim, because that's a, that's a great point because answering that exposes one of the lies that Putin tells today. Right. We worked very hard, both the United States and our NATO allies, to work together with Russia. In the 90s, in 97, we created the Permanent Joint Council in the 2000s, uh, we created the NATO-Russia Council, the summit in Practica di Mare, Italy, uh, with Putin before the invitation to the Baltic states was made that November. So Russia meeting in May, Prague summit in November. We were conscientious about trying to make clear to Russia that freedom and security for Europe is good for Russia and not a threat to them. And we will work hard to help make sure that we work together with Russia on security issues. And we, under the NATO-Russia Council, we did search and rescue at sea. We helped them with the Kursk, the Kursk submarine incident. 
Uh, we developed uh, methodologies for peacekeeping and uh, rules of the road. We well, worked together so on- Kurt, if, if I may, there were Russian troops inside the US sector in Bosnia. Yes, in Bosnia and in Kosovo. And in Kosovo. When I commanded troops in Kosovo, I had yes. a Russian airborne battalion. Exactly. And missile defense as well. Yeah. We also worked with them on theater missile yeah. defense. And it was yeah. Putin who decided, and his Munich speech in 2007 was the, the starting gun. Uh, he's tearing all this up. And he is going to rewrite European security the way he wants it. And tore up the NATO-Russia Council, tore up the CFE Treaty, tore up Open Skies, tore up the Vienna document, um, tore up missile defense, threatened uh, the Baltic states, refused to agree borders with them, attacked Georgia, attacked Ukraine. We have to be clear about what happened. <laughs> yeah, Doug, absolutely. I, I And I was going to say that I remember when they came inside the wire at Shape, they had their own... Uh, you know, there was a, a Russian general and his staff, you know, right down the hall, I guess, uh, from Sakir. Well, not quite down the hall, but uh, certainly they ate at the same mess. But anyway, Doug, your view. Well, I, I very much agree with Kurt. I mean, things have changed. Look, we, we went from a period in the late 90s where we were actually operating alongside one another cooperatively um, to a point where we're, you know, essentially at war. Uh, and so, look, things change. And, and who's responsible for the change? It wasn't an absence of NATO outreach uh, to Russia. It was just the reverse. It was Putin slamming the door on, uh, on this. And, and this is in part because this narrative of being at war with NATO or in an existential struggle with the West is the sort of narrative that he is he requires to stay in power and justify the sorts of measures he's imposed on the Russian nation. So That's right. he, he needed an enemy, so he created one, <laughs> yeah. and, and it was us. Uh, but, but that defies the notion that, um, that we're responsible for this, which is, of course, his narrative. I mean, he's very much at the driver's seat here in terms of uh, creating the kinds of the, the narrative that um, that Russia is in any way threatened by NATO, and, and look, the 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 final the final convincing argument on this is: look where NATO's force posture has been over these years. We have never assembled anything like an offensive capability against Russia, um, and and so you know the reality here is that this was a narrative crafted by Vladimir Putin to serve his own objectives. Um, and as Kurt says, we should we should we should reveal that lie. We should expose that lie to to broad daylight. Absolutely. Absolutely. Carissa. I'm going to move us in a bit of a different direction. Another adversary who has parroted these same talking points about NATO being really responsible for this crisis. I'm going to take us to China really quickly. So at this summit, we've seen the most words dedicated to the threats emanating from the PRC in any NATO summit communique to date. We saw for the second time the leaders of the Asia-Pacific Four join for the summit. Um, run us through what did the allies agree to with respect to China in this summit, and how is the alliance's thinking about the balance between the two theaters, the Euro-Atlantic theater and the Indo-Pacific theater, shifting, if at all? 
Well, I can take a stab at this and then and then turn to Kurt. But look, NATO over the last several years, as reflected in the last several NATO summits, has begun to acknowledge the challenge of China, the challenge of China as a competitor, as a strategic competitor, but not as a threat, not as an enemy. So I don't think NATO imagines a Chinese invasion of NATO territory or or so forth. But but this challenge with China, um, I think, uh, reflects that NATO allies and our EU partners, right, have begun to wake up to the fact that there is a global challenge presented by um, by President Xi's China. And, and initially, this challenge, I think, takes the form of commercial ventures, commercial investments on the European continent. And these are commercial investments in dual purpose infrastructure. So transportation infrastructure, mass communications infrastructure, energy infrastructure, and so forth, right? With Chinese firms buying up things like uh, seaports uh, around uh, around the European continent. And, and all by themselves, commercial interests are not necessarily um, a threat or a challenge, but in the Chinese model, today's commercial investments feature an expectation of political influence tomorrow, right? So there's commercial is the is the sort of stalking horse of political influence. And we've seen this time and time again. I'd I like to suggest that the destination of China's Belt and Road Initiative is not some souk in Turkmenistan. It is the 25% of global GDP of the European Union, of the European economy. Right. That's why China is building this this uh, series of um, uh, transportation, uh, this network uh, to uh, to the uh, to the West. So uh, that's the awareness that I think has been much more obvious uh, over within NATO and within the European Union. Uh, And there's a sense that. We have to come to grips with this growing Chinese commercial influence and at least be aware of it and it, uh, and eventually even take steps to counter it. And this is, for example, it's reflected, this competition is reflected in the in the um, debate about Chinese Huawei uh, buying up a 5G capability in the mass communications network in, in Europe. But it plays out a different in a variety of different dual purpose infrastructure sectors in Europe. And, and the NATO communiques have become more, more aware of this. It's been more explicit. Uh, this is an important area in which NATO and the EU ought to cooperate. Yeah. Kurt. Well said, Doug. I have very little to add to that. I think um, the, the one the one thing I would say to help uh, listeners just put this in context, NATO is aware that China's global ambitions are impacting Europe. And so it is interested in coordinating how to deal with that threat in Europe. NATO is not going to deploy military assets to the South China Sea and police Asia. Um, That's not going to happen. But the way it's affecting Europe is something that they are becoming more and more aware of and more committed to dealing with. That's right. In well, fact, the geographic confines of NATO's responsibility are in the treaty, 
right? So right after Article 5 that describes the mutual defense, right, um, the, the geographic definition of where Article 5 applies to which territories are actually in the treaty. And they don't extend, as Kurt just said, they do not extend to the Indo-Pacific region. So there's no, there's no challenge here that NATO is going to de be deploying forces or capabilities into the Indo-Pacific. Now, individual NATO allies may on a national basis. So you see British ships and French ships and so forth in the Indo-Pacific, but you're not going to see NATO operate there as an alliance. Right. We're, we're pretty much uh, closing up in terms of time, Chris. Am I right? Is this, uh, we're getting close to our, the bewitching hour here? We're getting close. So Jim, bring us home with a final question. I, I have one point I want to make on Ukraine before we're done. So just, just we'll follow the flow. Is it, a, is it a great uh, clashing of symbols to end the podcast question? Well, kind of, yeah. It's I, What I want to do is answer the question, how do you bring a country into NATO when there's still a war going on? Well, I tell you what, I uh, why don't we end on that? I was going to ask you again about the 2% uh, and whether uh, the allies are going to be able to afford all the things on their plate, whether it's the new force structure, replenishing their ammo that they've given away, uh, trying to hook into the new tech, high tech that's happening. There is quite a demand signal on allies to put money into defense. And there's not a, there's not a good history that shows the allies will do that. And But yeah. right now, it's, it's de we depend on the allies to step up and to actually do what they have promised, which is putting money into defense and hitting those areas that are a priority. Right. I won't ask you that question. <laughs> well, I'm happy to address it. Uh, <laughs> I will instead go to Kurt and say, Kurt, go ahead and let's hear your, your point of view. And then, Doug, uh, yeah. a final word from you as well. So, Kurt. Yeah. All right. Well, quickly on the 2%. A, you're right. You can't do the things that NATO needs to do for at less than 2% of GDP. Um, second, there is a very clear danger of countries not paying 2% or more which is losing U.S. political support. Uh, we right. saw that with Bob Gates when he was defense secretary. We saw that with Donald Trump. And that is a persistent theme in the U.S. Why should we pay a disproportionate share for Europe's defense? So, And that's a bipartisan point. It's not, it uh, it, yeah, absolutely. It is. Now, the question that people are asking when we talk about Ukraine and NATO, even forgetting the Vilnius summit, looking at Washington. Well, how can you bring a country into the alliance when there's still a war going on, there's still violence, or Russia hasn't declared peace? Uh, so how do, how do you do that without NATO being forced to join the war? And so I think we need to start developing a concept of um, what the defense of Ukraine means. What is NATO doing already and prepared to do for the defense of Ukraine. Article 5 doesn't say send your troops. Article 5 says we all react. So we can say we are committed to the defense of Ukraine. We are doing X, Y, and Z, and we will continue to do this in the future. Uh, and by doing that, you have addressed the issue of what the defense of Ukraine means, so that bringing them into the alliance then becomes more of a formality. You're just right. saying, okay, now you're a member. And Doug said something earlier, which is part of this concept, and I completely agree. 
we should be shifting a lot of our dialogue about the role that we play in defending freedom in Europe to the NATO-Ukraine Council. NATO and Ukraine are partners in the defense of Europe right now. Ukraine's not an ally, but it's a partner in the defense of Europe, doing more than a lot of other allies with a more capable military than a lot of other allies. Right. So we should be coordinating there about the defense of Europe. And we should be making clear our commitment to the defense of Ukraine and what we are prepared to do to assure that. And that becomes the foundation on which we say now you can become a member. Boy, you know, I I, I love that. And I think that's a Washington summit deliverable is that. I agree. And I think it's also I think the administration will come around to the view that this is a huge legacy for President Biden at the end of his first term and he can't miss it. Yeah. Doug. Well, I do wonder about the political dynamics and uh, summit in Washington in August of 2024, right? Let's fast forward to what that's going to look like a year from now. We'll be in the midst of a presidential campaign and how that how that influences what we can expect to come out of the Washington summit, I think, will be interesting. Look, I think for NATO, um, the next decade features a very fundamental question. Will NATO in the next, what will NATO do with the next decade? Will it invest, that is, defend itself, meet the 2% pledge, welcome Ukraine into the uh, into the alliance and so forth? Or will it alternatively rest? So the real question is, will it invest or will it rest? There'll be some logic for rest, right? Because you'll have a weakened Russia, a weakened, isolated Russia, probably still um, held back by uh, historic sanctions, uh, perhaps threatened with internal security, instability, insecurity, and so forth. You'll have a strengthened Ukraine, ideally, coming out of coming out of this conflict. Um, and there may be some logic towards, well, the threat isn't as great as it used to be. Right. So so NATO faces this very fundamental strategic question of is it's going to is it will it invest in the future and in its core tasks or will it take a break? Will it rest? And I think that Vilnius began to suggest that question. And I think Washington will take be the next step in terms of of addressing it. I think that's right. I think this all points what both of you said all points to Washington, the Washington summit being another uh, historic moment that will probably overshadow the summits that came before it. Carissa, over to you. Take us home. Hey, thank you both for joining us on the podcast today. As always, we covered an immense amount of ground. So we appreciate you sharing your analysis on takeaways from the Vilnius Summit and then bringing us home, Ambassador Lute, with what to look forward to in that Washington Summit in 2024. So thank you both again for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.